And now, I'm excited to introduce today's speaker, Caroline Park. Please help me welcome Caroline as she comes. Morning, everyone. Thank you, Lucius and the worship team. It's amazing to see all the volunteers stepping up to fill in the fill in for the staff. Um, all the pastors are, um, it seems, on break today, and I'm also here to um, fill in for um, for the pastors. <laughs> I am Caroline Park. I am a longtime member, founding member actually of this church and a formal pastor at the river. I'm at the moment um, back in school, but I sometimes um, come in here um, to speak whenever I can. So when the staff, uh, they were all little short staff today, as you can see. Um, they asked me a few weeks ago to preach today um, and said that I could preach about anything I wanted. I thought this is the day I will share one of my favorite stories in the Bible. This story is rarely preached about on Sunday mornings, as far as I know. Um, it's a story about um, a woman named Tamar who cheated patriarchy and got away with it. Doesn't that sound interesting? <laughs> Now, you might um, have suspected that um, I tend to share stories about women, and you would be right. Um, I try to bring in stories about women as much as possible because it doesn't happen often enough. There aren't nearly as many stories about men, a woman, as about men in the Bible to begin with. So according to a scholar who tallied this, there are apparently about seven 1,500 distinct names, personal names, 1,700 distinct personal names in the Bible. And how many of them do you think are women's? 137. So that's 8%. This, no doubt, reflects the culture of the biblical world, but I believe that Understanding women's perspective benefit us all, our society. So whenever I get a chance, I like to share stories about women. Today's story is particularly scandalous and is R-rated, so be warned. So according to the Hebrew Bible, Jacob, Abraham's grandson, right? Abraham, who we consider the... Um, forefathers of our faith um, and Jacob. So Abram's, Jacob had 12 sons and their descendants later became the 12 tribes of Israel. And one of them was Judah. King David and later Jesus come from the line of Judah. So the figure Judah is important in both Judaism and Christianity. In Genesis 38, we're told that Judah had three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And Tamar, whom today's story is about, was Judah's first daughter-in-law. So here, let's read the story together. 
Genesis 38, Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn. Her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her. Raise up offspring for your brother. But since Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, he spilled his semen on the ground whenever he went into his brother's wife so that he would not give offspring to his brother. What he did was displeasing in the, in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he feared that he too would die like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. So let's pause here a bit. There's a lot in this first part of the story. <laughs> Let me give you some background information about what's going on here. So Tamar married Judah's firstborn Ur, and he died. And there's this glaring issue of God putting someone evil to death, which does not fit with our church theology or our experiences. And we will get to that later. So let's set that up aside for now. So Tamar is now widowed, and her father-in-law tells his second son to go into his brother's wife. And go into, obviously, is the euphemism for sexual um, intercourse. So why did Judah tell his son to have a child with his brother's widowed wife? And why did Onan, his son, deliberately disobey? So there's a passage in the book of Deuteronomy that, will, uh, that helps us understand what is going on here. So Deuteronomy is the book of law. That's like its other name. Um, and one part, well, the passage in Deuteronomy 25 says, when brothers reside together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her, taking her in marriage and performing the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the firstborn whom she bears shall succeed to the name of the deceased brother so that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. So you see what's going on here? Ancient Israel was a clan-based patriarchal society. And in this culture, continuing a man's bloodline was extremely important to him and also to his family. So this custom of widow marrying her deceased husband's brother is called leveret marriage. And it helped a man continue his legacy even in the tragic event of death before having any children. It also had the benefit um, of providing a way for the widow to survive. Because legally, women were subordinate to men in their families, and they were not entitled to inheritance. So women's survival depended on having a husband or sons. The custom of leveret marriage gave them a chance to have children even after they were widowed. 
right? So then, why did Onan, the brother, not want to fulfill this duty and, and give his dead brother a son? The text says that it was because Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, right? Rather, the offspring would be counted as his brother's, which means it would reduce Onan's inheritance. Because with his brother, older brother dead, Onan was now, had a, he was entitled to the firstborn right, which um, meaning that he would have received the double portion. The, the firstborns received the double portion. Um, so that it will, he would receive, end up receiving two-thirds of his father's inheritance. If Tamar had a son who would be counted as his brother's, then the child would be entitled to his dead brother's firstborn right. Right? And the inheritance would be divided between the three sons instead of two sons, and Onan would only receive a quarter of inheritance. So that's not spelled out here, but Onan seems like a kind of person who would care about that. And God considered that evil, and Onan died too. So now Judah has a dilemma. He does not know, it seems, all that happened behind the door, what Onan did, and why his sons died. Yet, he chose to blame the women, as we often still do today, and he fears that Tamar might be unlucky or cursed, the wife, husband killer. And if he gives his youngest and now only son to her, he too might die. So he tells Tamar to remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. But he had no intention to follow through and risk um, his youngest son's life. In the meantime, Tamar was still under Judah's authority. Judah still could control Tamar and her body and would not be allowed to remarry, waiting for Judah to call her back in vain. What Judah did to Tamar, did to Tamar here was heartless and casually cruel. And in time, the story goes, Judah lost his wife. And after the period of mourning, he had to go up to Timnah to shear his sheep. And Tamar found out. So this is how the story continues. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she put off her widow's um, garments and put on a veil, wrapped herself up, and sat down at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. She saw that Shelah was grown up, yet she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought her to be a prostitute, so she had covered for she had covered her, her face. He went over to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, 
I will send you a kid from, a, from the flock. And she said, only if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and the staff that is in your hand. So she gave them to her, he gave them to her, went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she got up and went away, taking off her veil. She put on the garment of her widowhood. There's a lot of going in happening here. So somehow Judah does not recognize his own daughter-in-law. So either Tamar tricks him, or he tricks himself, into thinking that she was a sex worker. The signet is a seal that was used to authenticate documents. And the core, I think it was maybe attached to the core so that he could wear it. His staff was also a very personal item and likely uh, bearing some kind of identification for the owner. So basically, Judah handed over his driver's license and passport to, <laughs> as a safety deposit to Tamar, careless. And she conceives. Later, Judah sends his friend with a goat as a payment to, re uh, to recover his signet cord and the staff. But the friend, of course, could not find her. He asks around, but no one has seen her or any other women around um, in that area. When Judah hears that, he says, let her keep the things as her own, otherwise we'll be laughed at. You see, I sent the, this kid, and you could not find her. Basically, he said, not my problem. Wrong. <laughs> About three months later, the story continues. Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the whore. Moreover, she is pregnant as a result of whoredom. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law. It was the owner of these who made me pregnant. And she said, take note, please, whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah acknowledged them and said, she's more in the right than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not lie with her again. In time, Tam Tamar gives birth to twins, and even her delivery is full of drama. During the labor, one of the twins put out a hand, and the midwife tied the thread saying, around the wrist, saying, this one came out first. Because I, as I have said before, firstborn right was a big deal, and so knowing who came out first was important. But then he drew his hand back, and his twin brother came out first. <laughs> the midwife exclaimed, what a breach you have made for yourself, and so he is named Perez, which means breach or breakthrough in Hebrew. And his twin was named Zara. What a story, right? And if you feel uneasy about the story and its heroine, I'm with you. 
let me just say first that it is a pretty morally ambiguous story, full of dishonest people. But maybe that's why I like it. Let's set that aside um, for now. Tamar's firstborn's name is Perez, which means breach. It seems to symbolically summarize the story for us. Tamar, who was a victim of the patriarchal system that put her at the bottom of the social hierarchy as a childless widow. She breached the system with her trickery to ensure her financial security and social standing. Her tactic was not right. It is something one shouldn't do. But let's not also forget that this was life and death, a matter of survival for her. As I mentioned earlier, women were legally and financially completely dependent on men in their life. So their livelihood and fate depended on their fathers when they're young, before marriage, their husbands once they're married, and their sons when they're older, similar to Confucian culture that I grew up in. This is why in the Bible, caring for orphans and widows is so important because they had no way to support themselves. So women who lost their husbands usually remarried right away because they had to, to survive. But here, Judah told Tamar to remain a widow, meaning she was not allowed to, to remarry. Judah was, um, Tamar was still considered, in some ways, a property of Judah. He promised his youngest son to her without any intention to do so. So Tamar was stuck, powerless, living in her father's house without any future or, or control over her own life. What is scandalous and outrageous about the story is that she had the audacity to cheat her way through the system to ensure her survival. She puts on a costume of a sex worker, it seems. And here, it is ironic and interesting, isn't it? Sex workers in the ancient culture like this were so down at the bottom of the social hierarchy that they were outside of the system. And because of that, Tamar's disguise as a sex worker worked like a superhero outfit and, and enabled, enabled her to breach the patriarchal system, patriarchal strongholds, and take what she needed and disappeared into the night. I don't know. Notice that both Tamar and Judah were widowed, both engaged in extramarital sex, and Judah was afraid of being ridiculed at most. Worst thing that could happen in this situation. But he so readily sentenced Tamar to death by burning. Talk about double standards. By conceiving and giving birth to Judah's children, Tamar secured a place in patriarchy that would provide respect and security. She cheated the patriarchy and beat it in its own game. 
So it's a fun story. Problematic somewhat. But what does the story tell us? Does it tell us anything? I want to make three points about the story and relevant practical suggestions. And only one of these points is directly related to the story, which is that the story has the moral ambiguity. And because of that, it reminds us that the issue of morality in a situation is almost always more complicated and ambiguous than we think. It is easy to condemn Tamar as Judah did. And to be honest, in almost any setting, Tamar's deception would be immoral and criminal. But even Judah, when presented with the evidence of his own unethical behaviors of putting Tamar in an impossible situation with a false promise, of himself being engaged in the very sexual encounter that Tamar was condemned for, he realized that his righteousness was different from Tamar's and that it was he who wronged her. As the Jewish scholar Tikva Framer Kinski wrote about this story, um, she wrote, a man with both power and lack of understanding becomes an oppressor. Judah was privileged in his culture because he was a man and had resources. And he could not fully understand the perspectives of a very marginalized woman, Tamar. And us too will always have blind spots in our perspectives. Unless we make special effort to understand the perspectives of the underprivileged and marginalized among us, we will too become oppressors. From the perspective of the privileged man, Judah, the law was clear. A widowed woman under my care cannot engage in sexual activity. That's simple and right to him. But from the perspective of the women, it was injustice and a death sentence. It was far more complex for her. And in a way, it is the society's idea of righteousness that imprisoned her and deprived her of her autonomy. Judah did not realize it, or he did, but didn't care until Tamar conceived his own children. So my first practical suggestion today is to be mindful of your blind, spot, blind spots and consider the perspectives of those marginalized. Think about the marginalized people groups within our own society. Women in general, yes, but also people of color, immigrants, especially undocumented immigrants, Native Americans, black and brown Americans, and LGBTQ folks, especially transgender people, those who face hatred and threat of violence every day. Remember them and be mindful of their perspectives. My second thought about the story 
is a larger than just the story itself. It's that the Bible allows multiple, sometimes contradictory perspectives. Contrary to our assumption, the Bible is not a harmonious, coherent whole. A highly esteemed Bible scholar wrote um, in his com commentary about this story, um, he said the major problem in dealing with the chapter, meaning Genesis 38, the story we just read, is that even close study does not make clear its intent. He's saying that the story does not have any significant theological or moral message. He, does, he cannot understand why the story is there. So why? Tamar is like an anti-hero of patriarchy who exposes the problem of their system and the failure of the levered marriage law that was meant to alleviate the hardship for women. But then she also is not necessarily a feminist hero that we all can fully embrace because ultimately she wanted to be let back in, to be part of the very system she breached. She wanted to occupy a place for herself and her children and she did not bring any change to the system itself. So why include this story so prominently? This is at least partly because the Bible was composed and edited and read by many different peoples over many different generations. And therefore, it includes multiple viewpoints originating from different contexts, different historical uh, backgrounds, multiple theologies and ideologies, often next to each other. That's why sometimes Bible is so confusing. Today's story is one evidence of that. The Bible is a story of a people who wrestled with God and with who they understood God to be. They attempted to explain what was happening in their world through the faith through their faith, and especially their experiences of trauma, hardship, and displacement. And there are different strains of thoughts and explanations in the Bible. They all included it. And we do not have to agree with all of them. For example, some try to understand the suffering in life as God's punishment for disobedience. The passage we just read explains the death of Ur and Onan as God's punishment for their evil deeds. But we do not have to agree with this particular theology to read and receive from the Bible. The Bible is not a book of prescription for life. So my second suggestion is to read the Bible critically and thoughtfully. Read with an open mind, but wrestle with what you do not agree with. If you're interested in learning to read the Bible in this way, there was a, there's a book club going on, it seems, right, this, uh, right now undergoing, reading Peter N's book called The Bible Tells Me So, which could be a good 
um, place to start. The third and last thing I want to talk about is what the story says about God. God is not bound by the values and beliefs of the biblical world. The biblical world is undoubtedly patriarchal. Not just that the culture of ancient Israel was patriarchal, but that the Bible was also written and edited by men about men for, from men's perspective, mostly. Men were in power, and the most important thing expected of women was to produce heirs. And I don't know if their culture was always like that because there are some earlier stories about women leaders like Deborah. But especially as Israel developed into monarchies, the culture also became more hierarchical and centralized around the king and other men in power. God worked among these people, men and women who li lived in the patriarchal society, but it is also important to remember that it does not mean that God endorsed their culture, nor did God design or ordain it. Some religious people use the Bible to assert that the norms of this biblical world should be applied to now because that was God's way, whether that's in regards to women or homosexuality, whatever it is. But then that does not explain the stories like Tamar's and the fact that someone made sure that her name was included in the genealogies of David and Jesus. Tamar's son Perez, whose name means breach, stands in the genealogy of King David according to later books in the Bible. They did not have to include that, did they? Tamar appears in the genealogy of Jesus at the very beginning of the New Testament in Matthew. The passage traces Jesus' ancestry to Abraham. And it, Matthew 1-2 says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. It goes on from here, but I'm not going to read all the names. But I want to point out that how all of the people in the genealogy are men, except um, it goes like so-and-so was the father of so-and-so, who was the father of so-and-so, right? But five times it breaks this formula to include the mothers, and one of it is Tamar. Now in some ways, one can say Tamar, um, look at this genealogy and say Tamar and her transgressions against the patriarchal ideals have been sort of absorbed back into the system, into this genealogy, and Tamar looks as if she was one of the founding members. However, it is remarkable, still, that the biblical authors made sure that these five women were included and mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus 
so that people like us would take notice. Tamar and the other four women transgressed the patriarchal norms of their days in major ways. After Tamar, there's Rahab, who was a sex worker in Jericho, the enemy town, and helped the Israelite spies. She's included. There's Ruth, a non-Jew. She was a Gentile. She was a Moabite woman, who is the grandmother of David. The third is Bathsheba, who is not mentioned by name, but it says, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Is there something wrong with that sentence? <laughs> the wife of Uriah clearly was not wife of David. Wife of Uriah was raped and impregnated by King David, who then murdered her husband to hide the affair. Then there's Mary who conceived and gave birth to Jesus outside of her marriage. I'd love to speak about all these women sometime in a series and call it the outrageous women of the Bible. <laughs> but for now, my point is that these women were included in the list for a reason. And to understand God, understand Jesus, God's movement today, we also need to understand these women's stories and their perspectives. God is bigger than the norms and the values of the world from thousands of years ago. So my last practical suggestion of the day is this. Do not let the Bible or anyone's interpretations of the Bible get in the way between you and God. God is bigger than the Bible any ideologies or theologies. You are loved and valued by God, fully and unconditionally. Whoever you are, remember that. Before I wrap up, I want to invite you all to come talk to me if you have any questions um, or comments. Um, there's no chat with the pastor today, but I'll hang out here in the, um, in the front for a little bit if you want to come say hi. Let me pray for us. God, I pray that your presence bring clarity and comfort today and assurance of your love, even as we might question and wrestle with our understanding of who you are. Envelop us as a community with your love and acceptance that surpass our understanding and ideas and heal and make us whole. Amen.